0: Let me ask you, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I tell you, I am going to take that line, when I am on the mountain, I did not get there on my own. And when I am in the valley, I am not alone. That is an amazing expression of God's grace, isn't it? Well, I want to take some time this morning. First of all, let me just say what a blessing it is to be here. I usually do not get to travel with my wonderful, lovely wife, Amy. Amy, wave your hand down there. And uh, we decided to get away together just to s- spend some time and to be here with you guys. I know you have been through a lot in the last month. I was scheduled to be here last month, and uh, for obvious reasons, I was not here. And uh, But so thrilled, been praying about this time together. And, and I want to this morning uh, look at i think may be one of the most unusual commands in all of scripture now we're in ephesians chapter four let me take just a moment to give you again the background the setting for what paul is about to say here if you remember the way ephesians is laid out uh, the first three chapters are theology and uh, in those chapters paul expresses the nature of our salvation that we were in darkness, we were enemies of God, and uh, God reached down while we were yet sinners and pulled us out of that and uh, walks through our identity in Christ. And then when you hit chapter 4, he begins into the practical. Now, that since these things are true, the first three chapters, now this is how you live. And he goes through and he addresses the issues of beginning with immorality. Now, remember Ephesus was was a very immoral place. It was a very large city, very diverse city, but it was famous for the Temple of Artemis, also known as Diana, and uh, the goddess Diana was worshipped there. And we learn in Acts from from the statement from the those who made the idols of Diana that the city was known worldwide for that temple. And and by the way, when you hear that term goddess, uh, don't get in your mind some beautiful Greek goddess. Ar- uh, Diana was a very hideous-looking thing, uh, capable of uh, nursing dozens upon dozens simultaneously. It was a fertility goddess, very unattractive goddess, and uh, so the city was characterized by that temple and that worship, and the prostitution that accompanied that, the immorality that accompanied that, and and so it was known for that pagan worship. And and so Paul begins in in chapter 4, he addresses the issue of immorality and uh, how people have given their heart and their hearts, given themselves over to that. And uh, then he makes this wonderful statement. He says, but you did not learn Jesus that way. That's not how you learned Christ. In other words, he says, that's not who Jesus is. Now notice he doesn't say, that's not on the list of things you should and shouldn't do. He says, that's not who Jesus is. And he says, so put off the old man that's being corrupted, and he says, put on the new man. Now, look at verse 24, here in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor." for we are members of one body. Now look at verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity, or literally it says a foothold, a place. Now would you agree with me that we are at a time in our culture right now that is just saturated with anger? Isn't that the truth I mean it's just I don't know if I remember a time where there is so much anger that just is in culture right now not long ago um, we were going early on a Sunday morning to church and there's a little two-lane road that leads down we're, our church is about five minutes away from our home and because it was early Sunday morning there was nobody on the road except us and we're just driving along this little two-lane road and I look up ahead and there's a pickup truck sitting into an entrance at an entrance to a place And I can see him about a quarter mile ahead of me. And so I'm just driving, and he's sitting there. And I get closer. I get about four blocks away, and he's just sitting there, and three and two, and he's just sitting there. I get a block away, which is still a long distance, just sitting there. And I get all the way up, and right as I get to where this truck is, he just suddenly pulls out in front of me. And I slam on the brakes. He comes in front of me and around me like this. And I I come to a stop, and I look at him. And he is just screaming profanities at me. I I did nothing. I was just driving. And he pulled in front of me. And you know, you don't have to be a lip reader (laughs) to know what's being said to you. And I I just, I started laughing. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. You just pulled out in front of me and you were screaming profanities at me? That's the culture we're in right now, right? There's just so much anger in in our culture. And so it it jumps out at you in verse 26 that that Paul makes that statement, be angry and yet do not sin. Now, there are two kinds of anger. There is God's anger, which is a righteous anger, and we're going to talk about that. And there is man's anger, which James interestingly tells us in chapter 1 Does not achieve God's righteousness. So there is godly anger, righteous anger, and that's what we're being exhorted here because what you find in scripture is man's anger, there's constant exhortation to put it away. In fact, just about three verses later in verse 31, it's one of the things that Paul says put away all anger. So we're to put away anger, or or repeatedly, Scripture says this, be slow to anger. Now, the idea there, by the way, is not that, well, just let it take a whole lot before you finally get angry. The idea is, he also says, be slow to speak, slow to anger, James says. So the idea is this, that your initial response, you have such control over your spirit that your initial response is not an angry one. In, In fact, Proverbs says that, that a man who is slow to anger has mastered, controlled his spirit, and he's like a walled city, a city with a wall around it. In other words, he's not vulnerable to attack. And so Scripture is constantly exhorting us, have control of your spirit so that anger is not your response to issues that happen. Now think about what that means. That means that one of the primary differences between the church and the world should be that we don't get angry like that. (laughs) That we're not constantly angry. Now you know man's anger, most of us don't struggle with the issue of righteous anger, right? I I mean the anger we deal with deals in feeling slighted or neglected or wronged and really all man's anger is rooted in self-love. In some way our self-love has been violated. Our expectations haven't been met, we have been hurt, We've been dismissed, we feel like we've been disrespected, whatever it may be. And so it evokes in us man's anger. And again, James says that man's anger does not achieve God's righteousness. And you can look through the scripture and find that constantly. You can find Cain and his anger towards his brother Abel. You can find it in Esau and his hatred, resentment of Jacob. You can find it in Joseph's brothers and their abuse of Joseph. And so anger gets displayed in those kinds of hurtful ways. But what Paul is commanding here is righteous anger. Now think about that, that very phrase. Anger, an emotion that is rooted in righteousness, which is an attribute of God. And remember, when we're talking about an attribute of God, righteousness is not simply something that God does God is righteousness. Therefore, everything he does is righteous, right? Because it's an attribute. God just doesn't do righteous things. He is righteousness. Therefore, everything that proceeds from him is righteous. So out of his righteousness, anger comes. Now, here's something. There are things we should be angry about. Sin should make us angry. The devastation it does to families should make us angry. Alcoholism and drug abuse should make us angry. The oppression of the widow and the orphan of the poor should make us angry. Those are things we should be angry about. Now, I want to take just a moment. What we're going to do here, so you're going to have to track with me. I want to look at three examples in the New Testament of Jesus showing anger. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three passages and then go back through them, because I want you to see a common thread that exists in all three of them. Turn, first of all, to Mark chapter 3. So as you turn to these places, you'll probably want to keep those places, because we're going to uh, be going back to them. Mark chapter 3. And I want to look at the times Jesus demonstrated. anger. remember something. Jesus said, I do only what my Father tells me. So Jesus never acted apart from the Father's direction. So when he is displaying or or clearly told as being angry, it is because the Father's heart is angered at that moment. Now, in Mark chapter 3, it's the only passage in the entire New Testament that specifically states that Jesus was angry. So look at that, beginning verse 1. It says, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Now, that that word, by the way, in the Greek means just kind of shrunken up, dead. I don't know exactly what it looked like. Quite probably, it sounds like something he was born with. But he had a withered hand. And it says, they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So you get the impression that they probably brought this man in and tried to put him around Jesus because the language there says that they were kind of hovering back intently watching to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath because they did not allow healing on the Sabbath remember the Sabbath was the only day that the Pharisees and the Jews had control six days a week for the Pharisees they were under Roman rule on one day a week on the Sabbath they felt like they were in control they could dictate how you lived They could dictate what you did. They could dictate down to the point of how many steps you took on that day. And so the Sabbath was the day they felt like they were in power. And so one of the things that was forbidden was to heal on the Sabbath, to to apply medicine, to do those kinds of things. And and so what they do is they're watching him. Verse 3, it said, "He said He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, it's the only time in the New Testament that word is specifically used of Jesus, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, it's interesting there, that Mark says Jesus looked at them. Now Luke focuses on the idea of Jesus looking and the idea that he was making eye contact with all the different people. Mark focuses on the fact that his expression, his countenance was one of anger and probably his tone of voice. Now we image Jesus a lot of ways, but have you ever imaged him angry? Well, evidently he was because as he looked at these people, he knew what they were trying to do, The hardness of their heart, they were rejecting him as Messiah. Jesus said, my father has sent me, and you're rejecting my father because you're rejecting me. So they're rejecting the father's will. They have corrupted the synagogue and the purpose of the Sabbath, and they're using this man who has need to further their own purpose. They don't care about him just like when the woman was brought in adultery to Jesus they didn't care about the righteousness of the, they didn't care about her they were just using her to try to entrap Jesus and and this whole scenario watching it unfold says Jesus got angry angry at how they were treating this man, angry at their rejection of God angry at what the synagogue had become and their use of the Sabbath listen again those things should make us angry when people are taken advantage of, when when the church is not what God intends it to be. There should be a righteous anger at that. Well, let's look at the second one. It's it's probably the most well-known in Scripture, and that is, look in Luke 19. Now this is Jesus demonstrating his anger. We're going to begin reading in verse 45. This is the cleansing of the temple. It is told by uh, each of the gospel writers. By the way, interestingly, if you didn't know this, Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and uh, once at the end of his ministry. This is in the end of his ministry, the last week of his life. Verse 45 says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word he said. So this is probably the most well-known demonstration of Jesus' anger, that he comes into the temple, and, and, and understand the background of this. It wasn't just that they were demonstrating greed and they were making it a marketplace. Remember, this is the court of the Gentiles, and this was a place where God intended the Gentiles to be able to come so that they could pursue a knowledge of God. But the Jews had such disregard and hatred for the Gentiles, what they had done was there was a dividing wall that Paul talks about in Ephesians, and you couldn't go past that wall if you were a Gentile. In fact, there was a sign up that if you went deeper into the temple, past that line, and you were a Gentile, the sign said, you will die, and it will be your own fault. And because the Jews despised the Gentiles, they had allowed this outer court which should have been the place of evangelism, should have been the place the Gentiles came to pursue God, that's where they put all their trade, where they would sell animals that were being sacrificed. And you know with animals comes noise, comes waste. They're selling birds. We're also told in Scripture... That, uh, that they had allowed people to shortcut through. Instead of going around the temple, they would enter the side there and cut through. So you had this train of wagons and animals coming through. It was loud, it was smelly, it was obnoxious, and it was supposed to be a place. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And in the rest of that verse in Isaiah, Mark quotes it, for all peoples, in other words, the Gentiles. Gentiles. Jesus said, this place is supposed to be a place where the Gentiles can come and find my Father. But you, having such hatred for the Gentiles, have made it into this marketplace. You've defiled it. And it made Jesus angry enough that he went in and started turning over the tables. Because again, the temple was being treated in a way that was dishonoring to God It had lost its sacredness, its holiness, and they were rejecting a people who God was reaching to. In fact, when Christ comes, what happens is, Paul says that dividing wall is torn down. It's gone. And now the Gentiles and the Jews both get to God, but they both get there through the cross. There is no difference anymore, no dividing wall. And so again, that anger swells up in Jesus. Now look at a third one. This one may surprise you a bit. Turn to John chapter eleven. John chapter eleven. Now we're just going to read a few verses here, but this is the. It's a long story. It's a story of Lazarus and his resurrection, and uh, you remember the story. Jesus, after preaching in Jerusalem, had gone to the other side of the Jordan. And uh, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, they were in Bethany, not far away. They had sent a message to Jesus saying, the one who you love is sick. And the Bible says that Jesus stayed there. He didn't go to, to heal Lazarus. He stayed where he was for about two or three more days, a little over two days. And, and uh, because, by the way, they already knew, the disciples knew Jesus as the healer. And Jesus knew they needed to know him as the Resurrector. And so whenever God delays, it's because there's a way He wants to reveal Himself to you that is new. And so they waited, and then Jesus says to the disciples, we need to go to Bethany. Uh, our friend Lazarus sleeps, and they said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's getting better. He says, tells them plainly, no, he has died. And so Jesus comes to Bethany, and, and you remember in, in this day and time, a Jewish funeral was a huge thing. You hired mourners. Beyond that Uh, apparently Lazarus and his sisters were well known and loved by many people so there's this enormous crowd there and it's a very demonstrative thing because when you hired mourners their job was to wail and I'm not just saying to sit quietly and cry they were hired to wail and it was a demonstrative people so Jesus comes into this and, and you know Martha comes out to him first and says says you know Master, if you would have been here, he would not have died. And they have a conversation. And then then Mary finds out that Jesus is out there, and she slips out. And and those, those mourners see her going, and they say she must be going to the grave to weep. So they follow her out, and she comes to Jesus, and she just weeps to him. And then they're sitting there weeping. And so look in verse 32. It says, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now here's the thing. That phrase, and however it reads in your Bible, deeply moved, is is a word in the Greek that literally means to snort in indignation. So the idea here is as Jesus listens to her and sees her weeping, and he sees all these people wailing and weeping over the death of Lazarus, it stirs something in him, this this sense of anger at what sin and death does to people. And it literally means a snort. It, It just... it. Jesus, it, he was so upset and angered at, at, at this, you know, one of the things scripture says is that we, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope, right? When we lose people we love, we grieve, that is a natural process, but we grieve with the undercurrent of hope. And so Jesus is watching the power that sin, you know, sin brought death, Right? And so Jesus is watching all these people wailing and what sin has brought in death and it just welled up and it troubled him and there was this sense of anger in his heart as he looked at what it does. So again, those things, what sin does, what alcoholism does, what opiate addiction does or meth or whatever those things, the things that destroy people's lives and families should make us angry. Listen, you should look around this community and see certain things that just make you angry because they make the heart of God angry because they're so destructive. So Paul commands us, be angry. In the midst of all the other commands, that says put angry away, put anger away. So he's talking about a righteous anger. Then he says, look up there on the screen, yet do not sin so we're to to be angry at these things but we're to separate that from sinning now how do you do that how do you be angry and yet not sin well let's walk back through them real quick mark chapter 3 this is the withered hand notice what it says they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save or to kill? But they kept silent. Now, look at verse 5. And looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. You see, what sets apart righteous anger from man's anger is grief. Jesus looked at them, and he was grieved. Now listen, hear this truth. You can make anybody angry, but you can only grieve somebody who loves you. Isn't that true? You can make anybody angry, but grief is an expression of someone's heart of love. And so, because God is love, as Jesus looked at this, there was simultaneously those two things. There was anger at what they were doing and and the manipulation of this man and the rejection of him. And yet, there was grief because it came from the God who so loved the world, he sent his only son. So that is the element of anger that separates it into righteous anger that we carry within it a grief for people. Look at the next one back in Luke 19, Jesus cleansing the temple. We looked at verse 45 through 48, but look back up at verse 41, Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city... And what's it say? He wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. In other words, a day is coming of judgment. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So before Jesus walks into the temple and and turns over the tables, he stops outside the city and he weeps for it. As someone has said, before he was the whipping Christ, he was the weeping Christ. So again, there is anger, but is accompanied by grief. Burden. Look at the last one. John chapter eleven. Remember in thirty-two through thirty-four, it simply says that uh, Jesus was troubled, was stirred within himself. But familiar verse, look at verse thirty-five. What's it say? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. There you have it again. You have anger at what sin has brought, the death it has brought, the despair, the wailing. Listen, for us as believers, though we, again, we grieve at death, it's promotion. It's what we've waited for, to be in the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So we grieve because of our loss for a short amount of time, but we have hope that we're going to be restored in in relationship in eternity. But Jesus is looking at these people weeping and wailing, and he got angry, and then it says he wept. He wept at the grief. See, that's the heart of Christ. Now, you say, Mark, how do you love somebody who makes you angry? Remember, we're going to talk about this tonight. I'm going to kind of do a session revolving around the family. But remember, love is not an emotion. Love, biblically defined, is a sacrificial pursuit of someone else's well-being. That's what love is. Isn't that what Jesus did? Sacrificially pursued our well-being. That's what love is. You choose that. That's why I urge people that it's so important when, when you are hurt by somebody or angry at somebody to pray for them. Because that is an act of love. You don't have to like them. By the way, Scripture doesn't command us to like everybody. It commands us to love them. That's not an emotion. That's a choice. So when you feel that anger, you pray for them. Because that's what love does. You share a grief. God, listen, there are people who, whatever that man who yelled the profanities at me, there's no telling what's gone on in his life. The hurts, the heartaches, the the drugs, whatever may have been there, I don't know. So you have a sense of grief and you pray for that person. So he said, be angry, do not sin, and the way you avoid sin is you let the love of God permeate that anger, making it righteous anger, Now, look at the next command. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, listen, I believe God knows that anger is such a volatile emotion that in this fallen state and fallen world, it is not something we can carry with us. And so, Paul says, Be angry. Make sure you don't sin, and by the way, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You see, anger is like the hot pan you take out of the oven, righteous anger. There's something good in it, but you've got to be careful with it, (laughs) because you can burn yourself, right? So he said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And let me just say something, right now, in, in, in our political world, there is so much anger on every side, some of it righteous, some of it man's anger. But here's the key, if you go to bed carrying that anger and you wake up in the morning carrying that anger, it will affect you in every area of your life. You cannot carry anger like that because anger never stays narrowly focused. It always bleeds out into your relationships. So you will find yourself being angry in all kinds of ways. Amy and I have counseled women through the years who, who one in particular, I remember just said, I am so constantly angry, and I don't even know why. People who just lose composure, and listen, Proverbs says, a fool gives full vent to his anger. And one of the things the internet has done because of anonymity is it allows people to constantly give full vent to their anger. They just let it out over and over again and troll and pursue and and try to destroy people. And listen, you're going to bed with it and you're waking up with it and it is spreading in your life. It is not staying in that one direction. And you will find anger coming out of the people you love the most even if you're carrying it for a totally different reason. So do not let the sun go down on your anger and tied to that, that last phrase, and do not give the devil, literally it says, a foothold, a place. So what happens is when we carry anger, what it does is it clears out a spot that Satan sets a beachhead on in our lives. And he uses that, like I just said, to get into our lives and to affect our other relationships. Remember, he came to kill, to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what he wants to do. So when we carry anger like that, even if it's something that, that in and of itself is legitimate to be angry about, but if we don't process it rightly... It ends up clearing a spot for Satan to get into our lives. And once he gets a beachhead there, you know he's never content with a little bit of ground, right? So he's gaining ground and moving and moving forward. You see, that's the power that anger has. And, and by the way, most anger that I find in Christians will typically be tied back to some deep hurt in their lives. An abuse, a neglect, a wronging. Uh, I, I've met people, I remember the the church Michael mentioned, Sagamore Hill, where he was on staff, there was a lady across the street, and uh, I worked on the church grounds in the summer, and this woman just, they told me she hates our church, and uh, we try to be nice to her, and so I would often, I was working on the grounds of the church, I would see her out, and I'd go over there and ask her, hey, do you need anything done? She was an older woman, and uh she would sometimes ask me to like clean off her fence line of weeds and different things, and I would just do that just as a ministry to her. But one day, she began to like me because of that, and, and one day I asked her about her antipathy towards our church, and you know what? It went back literally 40 years to an incident that if she were able to see clearly, she would have been embarrassed that she had carried anger for 40 years over that. And now it had grown up into this intense hatred for the church. And so if you let those things go unattended, they make a deep, profound mark. Now, one of the joys I've also seen over the years is what happens to people when they release anger, when they lay it at the feet of Christ, By the way, let me just say this. This just came to mind. There's some of you in this room that perhaps in your childhood things were done to you that were horrific. Maybe you've not even told anybody. Can I promise you something? It made God angry. But you can't carry that anger. I I remember a woman in a church, and I'll just close sharing this. And... um, we were in this church, staff member and I were walking, we were passing this woman, and she was an older woman, she was a matriarch of the church, and uh, the, spa- the staff member spoke to her, and you know, down here in the south, you say, Miss Jean, or Miss, you know, Helen, or whatever, and he called her, and she, she just walked on by, she didn't say a word, and I thought, well, maybe she's hard of hearing, and we got a few more steps, and he turned to me, and he said, that woman hates my guts. <laughs> He said, I have no idea why. He said, she hates the pastor, too. And we have no idea why she hates us. Well, during our meetings, she dealt with an abuse that happened when she was a child and uh, forgave and released that anger. And on a Sunday night, she came up and gave a testimony and just said, "For, for 50 years, I have hated I've hated that event I I was angry at my parents for not protecting me for telling me to keep it quiet it was embarrassing me embarrassing to them a family member had molested her she said they they made me suppress it she said I've hated that event she said I have no idea how my husband has stayed married to me she said I have been so angry in my life she said I cannot believe my children will even still talk to me I have been so angry she said but this morning after all these decades I forgave and I released the anger And she just said in tears, she said, I'm free. I called that church several months later, was talking to the pastor, and I brought her up, I said, how's she doing? He said, Mark, you would not recognize her. He said, she is one of the most joyful people in our church. And she is one of my biggest supporters now. Think about it. You take the elements of the fruit of the Spirit, you can't add angry those. You can't be angry and love. You can't be angry and have joy. You can't be angry and have peace. You can't be angry and have patience. You go down the whole kindness, gentleness. You can't have anger and have those things. So what do you do? You lay it at the feet of Christ. And you say, Lord, vengeance is yours, not mine. And I want to be angry at the things that matter, but pray for the person who hurt you. Grief, love demonstrated to those who've wronged you. Jesus said if you love those who love you, big deal. Even the world does that. But when you love those who despitefully treat you, you reflect the very nature of God, who while we were yet sinners, sent Christ to die for us. Let me ask you to stand with me. If you would bow your heads. You know, I just want to take a few moments here this morning, and uh, if you need to come forward and pray, if you need somebody down here to pray with you, they will be available. But let me ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. You know, probably everybody in this room, myself included, has someone that you are carrying some level of anger towards. You know, again, we've had parents say, I'm so ashamed because I feel angry towards my children, uh, towards my parents, towards these people. I want you to take a moment to just lay that before the Lord. Just say, Father, I, I don't want to carry this anger. And then pray for that person. Demonstrate love for that person that has made you angry. You take just a moment to pray. Again, if you need to come down here and pray, you can do that. And I'll close this in just a moment. Father, thank you for your grace. That your anger is a righteous anger because you love. And Father, help us to set aside our earthly selfish moments of anger, to embrace those moments where we should be angry at injustice and unrighteousness. May we simply reflect you. God, I pray for anybody here this morning who has such a deep root of anger, they are struggling to release it. God, I pray that you would do whatever necessary in a severe mercy to allow them to do that. Thank you for your goodness. And thank you, Lord. Though when we were enemies, your word says you are angry with the wicked every day, you demonstrated love towards us. And we give you praise for that. And we pray it in Jesus' name.